You are listening to Service Course by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Really, we come at design in a slightly different perspective. It's all about, for us, design and making um, and the process. Um, Very often with sort of design history, it's sort of analyzing the end product. But for me, what's fascinating are the 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 guys and the the women behind the ideas and uh, often there's a sort of misconception of what design is what is design is it something you sort of bolt on at the end no design is very very easy it's conception and planning those three words that's it and we're all you know everything man-made is designed to a certain extent Um, And it's one of the biggest stories ever, you know, the design history story. It goes back to the Stone Age, you know, so we we are creative beings and um, it's that designing um, process that I find fascinating. Hello, uh, I'm Tom Wally and I'm, as always, with Lizzie Banks. Lizzie. Uh, You you told me not to, like, start the podcast just talking about you, but can I I just say... It's a podcast about me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> can i just say you, you look a little bit tired today lizzie oh I'm, i am a bit tired i'm actually i'm actually recording this in my pajamas from the comfort of my home in sheffield um yeah was out for out for some drinks last night because uh well my husband's my husband's got a job in france so we're, we're moving to france in uh one month's time so well, big change I'm, for us. I'm, I'm very excited about this because like last last month we sort of teased a kind of race that I feel like I invented and um, and I felt like your husband was going to help me facilitate this race. I invented the tour, the LHC. <laughs> Did you invent this? Well, maybe we need to explain what the LHC is first. The, L- well, I mean, literally, <laughs> the podcast is not long enough to explain that, is it? I don't think. <laughs> well, the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, is the world's lar- largest particle collider, which is located beneath Geneva and... Um, you know, the French Geneva area, and it's 27 kilometers. And actually, interestingly enough, uh, deep underground, you can cycle around it. Well, not you, Tom, one can cycle I, around I, it. I am going to cycle. Your husband is going to be my key to cycling around. Well, That's going to happen. I'm not sure he is. But um, <laughs> because it is, it is such a big area, that is how people get around it underground. Um, but unfortunately, although there is actually already a tour de LHC. I, I can't believe this. Can't believe this. Roll the tape. Welcome sports fans. As the champions battle it out in the Tour de France, we invite you to get on your own bike for a rather special ride. As you make a supreme effort to keep the pedals turning, do you ever wonder about the energy you're expending or the power you are developing? Or maybe, As you approach the summit of a big mountain pass in the searing midday heat, your mind turns to more existential questions, like, what am I doing here? Where do we even come from and where are we going? It's a four minute YouTube video uh, that explains how it works by comparing the LHC to a bicycle rider, which is quite fascinating. But if you want to go and do your own Tour de LHC bike ride, there is a 57 kilometer above ground bike ride. Um, There are stations every four kilometers with with information about the Large Hadron Collider. And it's recommended that you do not need to do this bike ride in one day, Tom. So I think even you will be able to to manage this. 
um, and yeah, it gives you a above ground tour of the, the circular collider. We could, uh, Lizzie, you did a, when I first mentioned this several months ago, uh, <laughs> you did a great joke. So I'm going to, I'm going to tee up your joke. So uh, we, we said something about how we could ride it in opposite directions. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then slam into each other and then discover what new particles are created. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll That's discover good. something really crazy like the, like the ceramic, ceramic speed, new OSPW arrow that's going to save you two watts. We could. We, we should. Before we talk about that, Lizzie, we should just say that. So your husband is going to work. He is a he is a physicist, and he's, he's going not to a physicist. work. He's not. He's not a physicist. He's an engineer. He's, a, he's an engineer. <laughs> anyway, he's going. You're going out there. He's going out there to work at CERN. CERN. Yes, we're going to be going out there. Um, we're going to be joining some friends out there. Elise Chave from Canyon Shram, who also lives out there as well. So that would be nice. And uh, I will be doing my riding in the foothills of the Alps and um, around. Geneva and Lake Annecy and uh, in the Jura. The Jura is just on our doorstep. So actually the, the Tour de France this year passes so close to where we're going to live, but about two days before we arrive. So <laughs> unfortunately I'll just miss uh, Lionel and the crew doing their daily pods on the ground for the Tour de France. Well, it's, I'm super excited for you because I mean, you know, obviously it's nice, you know, a, it's a big move. It's exciting, but I, I'm just excited about the physics. I honestly, like, you know, if it wasn't for, if it wasn't doing all this, looking about making podcasts and stuff you know physics and science and stuff is where my sort of interest lies so I'm going to just be every month now it's just going to in fact Gable's going to have to just be on the show every month I think you need to start writing your emails now Tom so by the (laughs) by the end of the contract maybe you'll be able to get down there and uh, and ride your bike down there but it's actually it's actually starting back up again soon there's been a big upgrade to uh, the Large Hadron Collider so uh, maybe you need to take your opportunity and get down there before it restarts and uh, well, we can do we... our bike ride and crash into each other and see what happens and see if we create, see if we recreate the Big Bang, which probably won't, probably just get a few broken bones. <laughs> um, Lizzie, well, listen, before we get onto the main uh, subject of today's podcast, I've um, I've sort of uh, made a, a bit like the, the rally episode I did. I've sort of done a deep dive into, uh, into Bianchi, which is another brand that sort of inspires that sort of, that level of fandom. But um should we do a little bit of a news round up some of this nice sort of new tech that's uh, that's been knocking around? Well, going back to ceramic speed, which is created by smashing two cyclists together <laughs> at 10 kilometres an hour underground in Geneva. Um, no, uh, going back to ceramic speed's new OSPW Aero, it's 739 euros for their new cage with an aero fairing, which does actually fall inside the UCI rules, interestingly, because it is a fairing that covers the jockey wheels. So they weren't sure whether or not it would fall foul of the rules, but it's legal. So whether or not we'll see people using it, I don't know. Um, Specifically the teams that are already on ceramic speed, I would think, why not? It saves you two watts, which equates to 2.5 seconds over a 25 kilometer TT at 50 kilometers an hour. And you might sniff at that, but if that's the difference between a Tour de France stage win or not, it is worth having. You know, these the margins in TTs, sometimes it just blows my mind how there are so many different people of so many different sizes and shapes on completely different bikes. And they come within seconds of each other. And sometimes over, you know, 30, 40 minute time trials, let alone uh, the likes of the prologue that we're going to see in Copenhagen um, next week. 
Yeah, I think with I think I mean it does seem to be the, the trend is moving away, isn't it, from the longer time trials? You know, just going back to sort of twenty twelve, the Tour de France when Wiggins won. You know, that that amount of time trialing is so rare in a race now. So you know, I thought you were going to say second, so boring, <laughs> and that can be quite boring. But like you know, seconds. You know, like I say, I mean, time trials. You know, we're, we're seeing the gaps. They they appear to sort of be coming down the sort of gaps between riders, but that's because time trials themselves seem to be the trend is to have them shorter at the moment. Yeah, people don't like watching them. We saw in the Giro d'Italia that on stage nineteen there was only three seconds between Carapaz and Hindley. So when you look at it like that, well, actually maybe maybe these gains are worth it. And you know, teams like Ineos, for instance, and every team really now these days, particularly the the bigger teams with more money, Jumbo Visma, and the likes, and UAE they will pay for all of those games that they possibly can. So I think that, you know, we will see this technology for, for those that those teams that can use it within the contracts of their other um, other partners. Uh, but we will also see this up and down the dual carriageways of the UK in the British time trialing scene because British time trialists love those games. They will, they will pay the money for those watts. But, you know, a, a kind of £360 of watt, it, it is. It is quite a lot of uh, pounds per watt. <laughs> you know what? That's that's set me on a task to find the most expensive watt in cycling. Um, I'll, I'll research that between now and uh, now and next month's episode. Gold, uh, a gold aero crank set or something, something like that. You know, the, gold aero, yeah, the aero crank watt. cover. If anyone out there can work it out and tell me the most expensive what in cycling, um, I'd really like to know. Um, anything else, Lizzie? I, I, I saw your nifty new uh, recycled helmet, actually. That's interesting. Yeah, so Pock, who are my helmet manufacturer, have made a new helmet called the Myelin, which is made a lot from recycled materials, not wholly, but it also can be recycled. And the critical bit about this is that so many helmets and most road helmets are, are glued together. And so when it comes to recycling them, um, they don't really have a, that long a lifespan and they're just going to go in landfill. The point of this helmet is that it can be taken apart. It's got sort of fastening mechanisms rather than glue. Um, and you can then recycle all of the different components in, in different recycling streams. I'm not going to say it's the first recyclable helmet ever because there are those those cardboard commuter helmets out there. Mm. Although those are probably still glued together. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's a good step forward. We've seen um, again my sponsor Cannondale. They've made the world's first recyclable bottle, and it's it's commercially compostable. And we see, you know, cycling bottles don't last that long. They they get manky after some time. And so, you know, to be able to to recycle these things commercially is is really important, and it is a step that the industry needs to take. And you know, maybe we'll be looking at recyclable bikes soon because the cost of carbon manufacturing to the environment is huge and, and carbon bikes are well they're not recyclable really are they and um they just get chucked away after usually not that long um i'm just about to buy a um well i've been i've had it in my sort of i've had it in my cart for a while um a, a watch made of totally recycled ocean plastic so i'm kind of in I'm really into this at the moment, this reuse of, of plastic and stuff. I, I think it's because I've got kids. I'm aware of the, the exceptional amount of plastic that is in my house. And I've got to do anything I can to reduce the footprint. Um, OK, well, Liz, before we move on, I think a nice way to sort of seg into this sort of Bianchi story. Um, well, let's should we start that story in Birkenhead. 
<laughs> well, a month or so ago, I was walking around Birkenhead. My husband spotted uh, his playmate's dad that he hadn't seen for 25 years. Uh, and we went over. He just about remembered him. And then he invited us to come to his garage. It was not what you would expect. And there was a host of vintage bicycles in there. Some beautiful old rallies, Tom. And well, specifically for this episode, an absolutely beautiful Bianchi fixie. Took a picture. I sent it to Tom. And Tom has been saying that he wants to buy a Bianchi fixie. So it's all set up because this guy was wanting to sell his bikes. So if you want some really nice vintage bikes and you're in and around Liverpool, drop me a line and I'll, I'll hook you up. But the interesting thing that I found was that I felt so out of my depth with these bicycles because they were so beautiful. But and maybe I shouldn't be admitting this as the host of this show, but I just don't know anything about them. I don't understand the history. I don't understand their significance. I have excellent bike knowledge from about 2014 to 2022. But my, my knowledge and my understanding and my appreciation doesn't really go back to that vintage era. era. So that's where, Tom, I have to rely on you because you're so much older. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I, I, I don't rely on me. I mean, my specialist subject is fixed gear bikes from 2008 to 2009. So it's not, uh, it's not, I'm not a particular expert. But oh, listen, well, if you want a little bit of a history of Bianchi, we're going to go right from the beginnings through uh, to the present day. And actually, it's interesting that you mention a fixed gear Bianchi because that's kind of where this story starts. Shoot, shoot at l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK reminding me to tell you that this episode of Service Course is sponsored by LinkedIn. As the sun comes out and small businesses are back in business, LinkedIn Jobs makes it easier to grow your team. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the people you want to interview faster and for free. We've used LinkedIn here at The Cycling Podcast and I use LinkedIn on a daily basis uh, in a personal capacity um, to talk about you know things I'm doing at work. But also I run a small production company and quite often we do need to hire people for jobs and LinkedIn is one of the places where we do that because it's so easy to do and it finds us great candidates. On LinkedIn you can create a free job post in minutes and it taps into the world's largest professional network with over 30 million people in the UK alone. Simple tools like screening questions make it easier to focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience. And it's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster and you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash cycle. Again, that's linkedin.com slash cycle to post a job for free. But just remember that I am on there and I may apply. Oh, and terms and conditions apply as well. A while back, I made a piece for this podcast about Raleigh leaving Nottingham exactly 20 years ago. That ended up being a kind of social history of the brand and it's probably the best received thing I've done on Service Course. Once out of doors, they were more aware of the factory rumbling 100 yards away over the high wall. 
But before I even started on that episode, I had in mind to do one on a similarly iconic brand. In fact, a much more iconic brand, Bianchi. I actually planned for it to go out around the Giro d'Italia, Q Amaratera. As I was saying, I wanted it to go out around the Giro d'Italia, and that was for a few reasons. Obviously, Bianchi is Italian. It's as Italian as Ferrari or Ducati. More on them later. So that reason goes without saying, but there's a thing that the Giro seem to do quite often in recent years, and that's to visit Treviso in order to salute one of the finest bicycle manufacturers in the world, Pinarello. Now, it might just be me being ignorant, but Bianchi doesn't seem to get the same treatment when the race visits Milan, where Bianchi was founded, or Bergamo, where its HQ is based. Specifically, it's in Treviglio. Although I do note that a couple of years ago, Bianchi was made the official bike of the Giro d'Italia. It's just they didn't make that much of it. This year's Giro d'Italia was the first that I can remember where none of the teams was riding a Bianchi. That's right, Italy's most iconic bike brand was absent from the race this year. They did have a heavy presence in the e-Giro, but nothing in the race itself. All I can tell you is they will be back and they are talking to people. But whether it will be a pro tour or whether they'll come in at a level below and then maybe work back up, I don't know. In 2020, Jumbo Visma ended their seven-year relationship with Bianchi. And in 2021, the only remaining World Tour team on a Bianchi, Team Bike Exchange, opted to switch to Giant. With that as a starting point, I wanted to delve deeper into the history of Bianchi and hear how and why the brand inspires such devotion and what makes it so iconic. I was at a wedding recently and when people make conversation with me, bikes are an easy topic to lean on. They're perfect for small talk. My friend Rob and I were talking and I think I was going on and on about fixed gear bikes and the episode I made at the back end of last year about what happened to fixie culture. Listen back to that episode when you can. I mentioned that I love a fixed gear Bianchi and although not a cyclist, Rob told me about his love for the brand and that kind of told me that I needed to make this episode. And then again recently I was talking to another friend a friend who spent a good while living in Stockholm and who my wife and I went over to visit. They reminded me of the Bianchi Cafe in the centre of Stockholm that was one of the first places I visited. And then I remembered that when I was living in London, another friend of mine, yes, that's three friends, guys, I know, mad popular, he had a bike shop that dealt Bianchis and so we'd go on the Bianchi Owners Club rides around the city. Incidentally, there are Bianchi Owners Club rides all over the world, not the sort of thing you get with other brands. The fact that they're the oldest bicycle manufacturer in the world is unbelievable. It's, you know, to me, that's mind-blowing in terms of design legacy or whatever. And they've been consistently pioneering design. They weren't necessarily the first, but they were one of the big pioneers of safety bikes. Um, so going from penny farthings to, you know, bikes with basically two sensible wheels <laughs> um, that were, you know, you could ride. They were the first 
by first manufacturer to use Dunlop pneumatic tires. They were the first manufacturer to make a lady's bicycle. That was Charlotte Feel. Charlotte and her husband Peter are probably very familiar to you. As design historians, they write about design every day. Their books include Chairs, 1,000 Masterpieces of Modern Design, Masterpieces of Italian Design and Litopia. All of them brilliantly written and beautifully designed, as you'd expect. I mean, it's form and function. It's when form and function meet and sort of make magic is is where, you know, hit the sweet spot. And... um, Yes, I mean, there is also something inherently beautiful about functional forms. I mean, this, even William Hogarth, you know, back in the day was was equating or, um, you know, writing about how form, you know, the most beautiful forms are those that are the functional ones. And that's because you're stripping away all the extraneous thing. I mean, it's almost like a law of design nature if you like or um and so and there's definitely a thing like in the aviation world you know if it looks right it will fly right usually if something looks right for what it's going to do it it performs right and that's why you know you can look at a bianchi bike or or another bike and you can almost see how it's going to work and um the other thing i think is there's this sort of leanness to bikes that are you know really high performance whether it and cars or or motorbikes as well there's this leanness which is um you know it's, it's almost like a muscular leanness and it's there to do the job basically um but there's something very purist about that too which i i think is is very beautiful when design works well it's almost like a using a prosthetic whether it's a pair of skis that works really well or whether it's a bike or or even your phone you know if it works well it's almost like a prosthetic and that's what you really want that almost emotional engagement too um, as well as the physical engagement and I think again design is all about problem solving and it's you know how how many problems can you solve in in one design solution that can be then optimized for experience and again what's so special about say Italian companies um, when it comes to design-led companies is that Italians tend to be or Italian manufacturers tend to be very good at either creating designs for the everyman you know low cost but really great things whether it's a simple thing like a you know, cartel bucket back in the day or, you know, a Fiat people's car, you know, the Cinquecento. But they're also incredibly good at creating what really are elitist products, but the highest performing. It's basically almost like going for high performance without thinking about, you know, budgets or anything. It's like we're going for it. Italy has always had a very um, special place in my heart. I actually spent a year um, studying in Florence when I was about oh, 17, I suppose. I was doing art history, but of course, I was totally compelled by the design I saw there. And that was 
you know, one of my big formative experiences of of clocking design, basically, was being in Italy for a year and absorbing the culture, which is an absolute design culture. It's a design-centric culture. It's seen as almost a way of life, the appreciation of good design. And I think that's why you get these incredible companies, whether, whether it's Bianchi or whether it's Ferrari or Fiat or, you know, you have these specialist companies that are really good at what they do. And I think because there's this embedded culture, design is part of the Italian DNA. It's part of the Italian psyche. It's part of the Italian identity. Um, you know, they take it very seriously. Picasso had a Bianchi bicycle in his Valoris studio and thought of it as, and I quote, one of the most beautiful and purest sculptures in the history of art. So Charlotte and I are definitely not alone in our appreciation of them. But what is the most recognisable design aspect of a Bianchi? Well, it's the colour, isn't it? Celeste, to be precise. Dior, Cartier, Van Cleef, they all reproduced the famous Celeste bicycles in their works. Charlotte and Peter have written about Bianchi in their book, Masterpieces of Italian Design. And I asked her if she knew where that Celeste colour scheme came from. I'll fess up, I don't. <laughs> but it is, it is a, a, be, a beautiful colour. It's like a sort of, um, it's an instantly recognisable colour. And certainly, um, you know, colour in design is hugely important. Look at Fiskars with its orange handle scissors. You instantly know that's Fiskars scissors. Um, and it's the same with the Bianchi. You know, see that colour... And you know. Now I promise you that I will tell you where the colour comes from before the end of this episode. In fact, I'll give you three stories of where that came from. Despite being so integral to the style of the brand, the colour has been known to change from time to time. This is the first year they've missed a year really, but um but you know, just prior to that with Lotto Jumbo, it's just, and and the great comments you get was people, they, the team will paint the bike in the team colours and everyone's like, you can't do that. That's not a Bianchi. That looks wrong. You can't paint it yellow. What's going on? And I think um, one of the one of the most interesting colour schemes was, was the Barlow World one. They, they tried, it was like a fluorescent, and the liquid gas was fluorescent green. And people tend to remember the colours when they were, you know, just painted in the non-Bianchi. And then when Bianchi suddenly will do a deal that where they're allowed to keep the bikes the right colour. Um, everyone's sort of relieved and oh, at last it's a it's a team that's allowed Bianchi to have their own colour. That was Steve Grimwood from Elmi Cycles in Ipswich, a Bianchi dealer and a bike shop that is absolutely steeped in tradition, having been around since 1922. And we'll hear more from Steve in a little while. Eduardo Bianchi was born in 1865 in Milan, and his childhood was anything but simple. At just seven years old, Eduardo entered Martinet, I think that's how you pronounce it, a historical boys' orphanage in central Milan that was established in the 16th century. A terrible misfortune for a small boy, but it was here that a young Bianchi learned basic mechanics and began developing his passion for mechanical engineering. Penny-farthing bicycles were invented around 1885 
But that didn't stop a youthful 21-year-old Eduardo Bianchi from establishing his first bike shop that same year on Milan's then-bustling Via Nerone. Less than three years later, he'd reduced the size of the front wheel, increased the size of the rear, and as Charlotte mentioned, he quickly went on to make the first production bike with Dunlop inner tubes and pneumatic tyres. Bianchi's workshop also manufactured ball bearings, wheelchairs, doorbells and more. But it was the bicycle with which his reputation as a craftsman grew. So much so that he earned an Italian royal warrant as official supplier to the royal court. Eduardo's company was asked to build a bike for Queen Margherita of Savoy. To accommodate the Queen's wide skirts, Bianchi modified the frame's geometry. He then taught the Queen how to ride the machine at Monza Park. So, no pressure there then. Basically, they started obviously as as bicycle manufacturers, but then they quickly moved into motorbikes. And when they started motorbikes, it was only three years after the very first production motorbike had been um, made. So again, it's showing this absolute pioneering, you know, wanting to be at the cutting edge. Um, so I think that's instilled into it very much so. So I think there's that, but also there's the associations of, you know, famous riders and um, that sort of thing as well, which I think is very emotionally engaging. Reparto Corsa, racing department, literally, was yet another brainchild of Eduardo himself in the late 19th century. It was a favourite term of Eduardo's, who put it to work in 1896 by using bike racers to demonstrate the worth of the machines he was producing. And so it goes. In 1899, a Bianchi ridden by Giovanni Tomaselli rolled to victory in the Grand Prix of Paris, the predecessor to the Tour de France. In demonstrating the strengths of Eduardo's bikes on the road, Bianchi's have been ridden to victory in 12 Giro d'Italia. Three Tours de France. I make it 11 kilometers to go to the summit here, Phil, and Pantani has not waited. In fact, he's looking over his shoulder to see if there's any reaction. Three Vueltas d'Espagne. Another big attack by Primoz Roglic. Five World Championships and one hour record. That was back in 1942, in case you were wondering. The early successes of Bianchi led to rapid growth in the early part of the 20th century, but not just using human power, and that is not a reference to doping. As mentioned, Bianchi were also making motorcycles, and in the 1920s they signed a contract with Tazio Nuvolari, who was a renowned motorbike racer, and he won a bunch of races on board a Bianchi, again increasing the profile of the brand and demonstrating that having professionals use your products is a great way to shift a lot more of them. Influencers are nothing new. Slightly prior to Tazio Nuvolari's Bianchi glory days, the brand were churning out bikes, motorbikes and cars to support Italian efforts in World War I. And this actually leads to an innovative bike design. The Bersaglieri were durable bikes made for sharp-shooting infantrymen. The first mountain bikes, perhaps. Luckily, though, these days, downhill bikes aren't used to slaughter anymore. 
The 1940s were an incredibly significant decade for Bianchi. It was the decade that Fausto Coppi started racing for the company. It was also a decade that saw the destruction of Bianchi's manufacturing facilities in bombings, which halted bicycle production for three arduous years. But more significantly, it was also when Bianchi's most recognisable trademark, the Celeste paint job, was introduced. Sadly, the 1940s also saw the death of their founder. Eduardo Bianchi died in a car accident in Varese in 1946. Where Bianchi is, is based in Milan, which is again a city that is very close to my heart, um, it's the sort of epicenter of Italian design, obviously. But why is that? Well, there's the most wonderful Polytechnic there, the Polytechnic di Milano, which has the most unbelievable design and engineering programs and has done for decades. And out of that come alumni that are, you know, the very best because there's been this wonderful synergetic um, thing of ideas. You have a very much a master's and, and student um, thing there as well. So, you know, you will get the top architects in the world, the top design, you know, designers in the world, the top engineers in the world, and they will be mentoring the next generation. Um, and so that's very special. But also in Italy, engineering specifically has a very much more of a professional status. Again, it's very, very respected career. And of course, um, you know, in companies, because that role is so respected, they get more input in manufacturing companies. So again, yeah, it's, it's this wonderful culture of design excellence. I think people join up the location, where they are, the colour, the history, and it all sort of ties together. And it's always amazed me that Bianchi don't, as a company, don't actually always see that so much. They almost do it by accident. I had a really long chat with the guys in the factory one year and, and the owner, and, and I was like, why haven't you got a visitor centre at the factory? Why haven't you got a museum? And you. I went into the factory and they've and they've got a they've got like a, um, a mezzanine floor with a cage and I reckon in the factory there they've got two hundred at least classic race winning bikes from races gone by so tour winning bikes important bikes all of the, the stuff that had been taken straight off the line of a race and and it was just sitting on a mezzanine floor in a locked up cage and I talked my way into going to look at them and I was like. This is this this is this Absalon's mountain bike from the Olympics here. There's the Paris Roubaix bike. There's a Tour de France bike. There's Pantani's bike sitting there. All these bikes are just sitting there. And I'm like, why haven't you got a visitor center where you can come and just look at the bike? And they're like, oh, it's old. No one's interested in old stuff. It's like we want to show people the new stuff. And I'm like, well, that's fine, but show people the old stuff as well. And they're like, maybe sometime. But if we do it, we've got to do it right. Maybe we'll do it in the middle of Milan. And like, no, your, your factory's in Bergamo. Put it here. And they're like, ah, no, it's not. It's a bit of an industrial estate. It's not. No, do it here. And it's like, and I'm trying to like, right, Mercedes-Benz have got a visitor center. Ferrari have got a visitor center. Why hasn't Bianchi got one? Oh, we might do it. We'll get around to it. Sometimes as a company, they're, they're so focused on the new stuff which is the success of the brand, 
and they leave everyone else to enjoy the old stuff. Let's enjoy some more of that old stuff now as we move into the 1950s. The company survived the 1950s relatively intact, thanks to the Italian government paying the debts they owed for Bianchi's production during World War II. In 1953, Coppi won the World Championships aboard a Bianchi that had an integrated headset, an innovation many decades ahead of its time. So I've got a, a 1957 um, Champion de Monde, which is all built up correctly. That was recently used by GCN on a, on a bit of filming over in Italy, and that really was lovely. The only thing wrong with that filming is it wasn't me riding up there, really, but um, I think they did a fantastic job. Who rode but, your bike in that one? Ollie. Ollie rode... Um, Ollie had my bike, and he made a really good job of it, actually, and um, made a much better effort of riding up the mountain than I would have done, so... Uh, didn't come back with that any scratches was, then or anything like that. No, it was all good. It was all fine. It came back fine. But I've I've had loads. I've had lots of different ones and um, all through through the years really. And they've always pushed the boundaries of what's possible. So sometimes they've pushed them too far, but the bikes have always been technologically um, right at the, the sort of top of the game really. That is Seb PK once more, reminding me to tell you that this episode is also sponsored by Stitch Fix. Ever wish you could send someone out shopping who knows your exact size, what you do and don't like to wear, and how much you like to spend on each item? Of course, the answer is yes, particularly if you're me. I mean, these days with busy work life and an even busier home life with kids I don't have time to cycle a lot of the time let alone go out and buy clothes and as someone on the much smaller end of the spectrum finding clothes that fit is really difficult and you can't rely on just mail order clothes because you end up sending a lot of them back and when you're so busy a trip to the post office is not what you need. So I've started using Stitch Fix. I basically follow what Lionel Bernie does. Lionel Bernie lost a load of weight and looked great, so I decided to lose a bit of weight. Lionel Bernie was dressing fantastically, is dressing fantastically, in fact. And so I sort of emulated Lionel in that way. And that's why I started using Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix is a service for both men and women, and it makes shopping for clothes easy. To get started, go to Stitch fix.co.uk slash cycling to set up your profile and then they'll deliver clothes chosen just for you in your taste size and budget you pay just £10 each time you order which is credited towards the items you keep and you'll get 20% off when you keep all five items basically Stitch Fix just take the stress out of shopping for clothes they do it all for you with their fantastic team of stylists Get started today at stitchfix.co.uk slash cycling and get 20% off when you keep all five items. That's stitchfix.co.uk slash cycling for 20% off when you keep all five items in your fix. stitchfix.co.uk slash cycling. The Bianchi team of the 60s for me is one of the best looking teams of all time. I mean, we focus a lot on Peugeot and Tom Simpson but this lot were incredibly stylish. Despite the style, the 60s saw Bianchi cease to sponsor a team for the first time since 1904. Mercedes primero, 
After an absence of seven years, a Bianchi team returned to the top level of the sport in the mid-70s. This was Gimondi's team, someone that can still make cycling fans go misty-eyed. The emotion is transferred to that bike and that design. And actually, there's something quite interesting um, in uh, Chinese, in China, there's very much an idea that um, when uh, products can be imbued with the emotion of the people who make them. And that's what you engage with. And I think that's very much Bianchi too. It's a real craft-based company still. Um, and, you know, the people who work there obviously are absolutely passionate about what they do. The people who buy their bikes are passionate about what they do. And it's that almost transfer of emotion, maybe. For all the classic models and the associations with things like La Roica, Bianchi was and always will be a brand that is forward thinking and innovative. In the 80s, they embraced new materials, aluminium, titanium, and by the 90s, they'd built probably the strangest machine to race Paris-Roubaix. In 1994, Johan Museo rode a full suspension Bianchi to 13th place in the head of the north. In addition, it was probably amongst the most hellish. Fewer than 50 riders finished. The bike is almost definitely the most striking bike that has ever been ridden in the Pro Peloton. The traditional diamond shape seems to have been replaced by a central X as the severely sloped top tube is met by an additional tube that protrudes down from the seat tube. The springs on the rear suspension look like Zebedee from Magic Roundabout. Florence agreed the traffic was getting heavier. Zebedee asked what the trouble was. I'm campaigning for a green belt, said Mr Rusty. After the experiments with suspension, Bianchi and the rest of the world's bike manufacturers returned to more recognisable designs in the 2000s. And Magnus Backstead, riding for the Alessio Bianchi team, won the 2004 edition of Paris-Roubaix. He talked to Lionel about it back in 2020. I will say the Forest is the first place in that race where you can lose the bike race. You're not going to win it, but you can definitely lose it. And If you've not heard that, then I recommend it. You'll find it amongst the Friends specials. Bianchi had stopped having their own cycling team at the start of the 90s, with the exception of one season, 1993, where there was a Bianchi free time team. They didn't come back with their own team until 2003, when they created a makeshift roster from the ashes of the Coast team. That team featured Jan Ulrich, and it was during that year's tour that Ulrich got as close as he ever did to Lance Armstrong during what is now seen as cycling's kind of interregnum. He finished 61 seconds down on the Texan. On a Jan Ulrich note, if you haven't read Daniel's book or listened to the episode where Daniel and Lionel discuss his life and career, then do make sure you check out both. They're both brilliant. But this is one of the things I admire about Bianchi and what sticks me to it is, um, is they are so stubborn and it is built into the Italian mindset they do it how they want to do it. And that's one of the things that they're, they're probably as stubborn as the British, but in a different way. So we we just, we if we're told to do something, we, we will say no. And we'll, we'll only do it if we want to do it. And they're very much the same, but they're so driven on how, what they want to do and how they want to do it. I'll tell you a story about one year when I went and um, 
they've got all their new range out and they've got all their bikes out. And I said, um, they said, what do you think? And I said, well, I think it's good, but you're missing a bike. And they're like, oh, what's that? And I said, well, in the UK, we need a bike with mudguard eyes so we can sell it for the winter. So your entry-level aluminium bike, your normal 600 quid Shimano Claris aluminium road bike, stick mudguard eyes on it and rack mounts, and then we can sell it as a winter bike as well. And they just looked and they're like, why would we do that? I'm like, because people ride the bikes in the winter, it rains a lot. And they're like, well, if it's raining, we don't go out in Italy. And I'm like, yeah, but in England, we go, if it's raining, it rains most of the time, we go out in the winter. And they're like, oh no, we can't do that. I said, no, seriously, we will sell loads of bikes if you put mudguard eyes on them. I have to stock another brand just to get a bike with mudguard eyes because you don't do one. And, you know, and they're like, well, maybe. And I went back next year and I, and um, they said, oh, I spoke to the guy I spoke to last year. And he said, oh, we listened to you. And I'm like, really? And I'm like, you're joking. He said, no, look, on the stand. And there was a bike on the stand and it was the, the Vienna and it had mudguard eyes on. I was like, amazing, amazing. First time ever they've done it. So I went to the UK boss, ready to order some. And I said, I'll, I'll buy some of those. He said, I oh, don't bother. And I said, what, what do you mean? I said, that's that's what we wanted, the entry-level aluminium bike with mudguard eyes. And they said, they're never going to make it. They've just, they've just done one to put on the stand to shut people up. It's not going to be, it's not going to go into production. They're not going to make it. Well, like, what do you mean they're not going to make it? And they said, well, and it goes against everything they believe. It's a, it's a touring bike. Bianchi never going to make a touring bike. It's got mudguard eyes. They're not going to make it. They're like, and I'm like, well, why is it on the stand? It said, they said, well, because everyone asked for it. I'm like, well, if everyone asked for it, then why? And they're like, well, because they got fed up of everyone asking for it, so they put one on the stand, but they're not going to make it. And we're like, okay, that's so, and that is just Bianchi summed up. Bianchi might be absent from the very top level of the sport at the moment, but it's still very much involved in racing. David Walters is the owner of the British elite women's team, Bianchi Hunt Morvello, and he was keen to tell me about Bianchi's support. Well, when I was Exeter University's uh, performance manager, we were getting Bianchi supplied for the, um, the teams via a shop, via the local distributor. And that was great, but the university pulled their funding. So I went to Andrew Griffin at Bianchi UK and we had a conversation. And they've been with us ever since as um, the most valued supporter, the longest standing um, sponsor in British cycling, male or female currently. Well, it's always been one of the go-to brands, isn't it? It's always an iconic brand. I'm a bit of a, um, a fan of the history of the sport. Um, going back to, you know, when I was racing, I always had an eye on European races and it's always copy this, Jamondi that, Pantani, Margentin, even um, Gabe Wiss and Berzin and all those guys. Um, so Bianchi's always been there and thereabouts as one of the brands you aspire to. Um, you know, Celeste is the colour and like um, Rosso for Ferrari, it's an amazing trademark of a brand. No other bike manufacturer's got it. And it's the oldest um, standing bike manufacturer in the world. And we're honored to carry the colors. And it's a standout brand. And everybody who knows anything about the history of the sport knows that Bianchi are one of the brands that um, are a constant. And they've come out with a fantastic range of bikes in the latter years for races like Jumbo Visma riding on the bikes for a few years. The development of the XR4 via them Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. A new specialty summer that we've got this year, another brilliant bike, but there's more to it than that. 
it captures people's imaginations. And when we go to races, everybody knows that it's um, it's a, a special bike and a special brand. And the brand is actually much, much bigger than the company. The brand's reach is huge. The company is actually quite a small company. So Bianchi will no doubt return to the World Tour at some point. But when they do, who should it be with? Now this got me thinking about the colour and which team's kit would be most complementary to the Celeste Bianchi. Suzanne Southers is a personal stylist and a colour consultant and it's her job to think about these sorts of things. So I gave her a quick call to get an idea of which team would look best on a Bianchi. The brand colours are absolutely beautiful. The aqua colour, it's very cool, very calming, sort of um, reminds us of the sea. I think colours that would have um, some energy to complement it, warm colours, because that's the aqua, the Bianchi aqua is kind of, it's a bluey green. So it's kind of between warm and cool, so it would suit most people. I think if you throw in some oranges, some yellows, it will give them warmth and energy, um, and it would be a fantastic balance between the calming and the, the energy, the positivity. Okay, so it goes well with orange. So, barring victorious, what are you doing? Get on a Bianchi, you'll look great. And as an aside, as I had Suzanne there, I had to ask her about my own collar and what I'd look good on. So, indulge me. I wouldn't put you in really strong colours because your colouring isn't very strong. But I'd say, I think your skin tone is quite warm. So, I think you'd look good in the in the Bianchi aqua, the turquoises. <laughs> Spot of coral. <laughs> Okay, so we've talked about colour. So where does that Celeste colour come from? Here's the big reveal. It's not that big. Big-ish. Okay, I I can tell you it officially from the company owner, from the factory, all right? So there are three official versions of where Celeste comes from, okay? And they are all true depending on the social situation. The first one is in is a historical kind of, you know, by the book reason. So it was a mixed up leftover paint from the army um, in the factory. So they when paint was in short supply, they couldn't get any. So they had some green, they mixed it with some white and some blue um, made up and it came out a lovely Celeste and that's the color they used. And it was on the utility bikes. The story they told they would tell to the Pope when they handed the Pope um, his bike. Wouldn't be that because it's nowhere near Italian enough. So he would have been told a story that um, that the colour was inspired by the owner of Bianchi at the time. The the founder, Eduardo Bianchi, um, was asked to provide a bike for Princess Alexandra. Um, And he built her a bike and he went to see her to find out what colour. And he was inspired by the colour of her eyes to make it um, the same colour. And she was very pleased. And um, and that's where the colour Celeste comes from. It is the, uh, it's Princess Alexandra's um, eyes that have inspired the first bike that was made for her. But then the owner of Bianchi, um, he sort of gave me a, a sort of nudge. And he says, but he says, the real story is that... Um, he took a bike over to her to um, to see how, to work out what he, she needed, and she fell off it, and um, and that was the colour of her underwear, and and that sounds far more Italian. And that is a delightfully retrograde note for us to end on. 
I'm not sure which story I like the best. Maybe the first one. I think I'm going with the first one. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Thanks as ever to Science in Sport for supporting everything that we do here at the Cycling Podcast. Coming up for the busiest time of year with the Tour de France and that is where science in sports help is invaluable not just for us but for a lot of the riders too and a lot of us amateurs who are going to be doing the ETAP actually I'm not doing the ETAP this year but a couple of our family are if you want to get 25% off your next order of gels powders recovery drinks from science in sport then just enter the offer code SISCP25. So just go to scienceinsport.com and enter that offer code SISCP25. Well, Lizzie, I hope you uh, got some knowledge um, out of that. One of the people that I did want to speak to when I initially planned this, I wanted to speak to someone from La Roca Britannia, because obviously I I kind of associate that event very closely uh, with Bianchi, um, but it's not happening this year. No, it's not happening this year, which is a huge shame because it's actually been in the Peak District, very near to me, yeah. uh, in the Bakewell area since 2014. And I remember coming across it, not knowing what it was, out on a bike ride in the Peak District and seeing hundreds of people crossing, you know, going down the, the gravel roads of the Tissington Trail on these crazy old bikes. And, you know, half of them were stopped by the side of the road needing assistance. Um, no helmets, <laughs> caskets, all of the all of the brilliant old retro gear. And that's when I first found out about it by just kind of Googling what was going on. Um, but this year it, it was supposed to move to Goodwood after a two year hiatus due to coronavirus. But it was recently cancelled due to, well, they say logistical and supply issues. But one has to wonder whether the cost of moving to Goodwood was a factor in in the cancellation. But it's a huge shame because I think it's, um, you know, the love of vintage bikes is is huge in across the world. Of course, Aurora first in Italy, and then we pinched Aurora Britannia and. And there's a lot of people who are going to be disappointed, unfortunately. Um, so we really hope to see it back, see it back next year. Yeah, I miss it. I used to go when it was in the in the peaks as well. You used to be able to sort of ride over from from Glossop over to Bakewell. Um, I think I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think you know, for anything that is trying to sell tickets at the moment, uh, things are difficult. The cost of living is a bit. Of, I mean, I know I've got I've. Um, Believe it or not, Lizzie, but I occasionally do gigs as a DJ that people pay to go to. I mean, it's oh, so amazing, you know, so you right? know how difficult it is to sell tickets because nobody wants to buy the tickets listen, to your gigs. Listen, I guess. Listen, listen, listen to this, Lizzie. This is this. I haven't done it for a long time. First gig back uh, was supposed to be last weekend. Yeah, it's been put back to October. Not no one's buying, but it, it is that you know, it's a, it's a congested calendar. There's a lot of people, you know, a lot of events that suddenly back up. You know, and people are having to make difficult choices. I'll do that event and not that event. You know, Glastonbury's back after a, after a hiatus, things like that. So it is, you know, it is challenging. And also some some people are still, you know, rightly so, nervous about, you know, crowded situations. So it is, it is a challenge all around um, before we even get to, to supply chains. But um, tickets are still available for my gig, which has been rescheduled to October. Band on the wall in Manchester. But unfortunately, tickets Great. are not still available for American Britannia, which has been rescheduled <laughs> to 2023. <laughs> 
They're not, but I will DJ. If, if it helps, I'll DJ the next event. If it helps shift a few more tickets. I, I, I don't know if that's going to help, Tom. <laughs> I think they might have put it back to 2024. <laughs> uh, well, Lizzie, listen, I better let you go. Um, we'll be back after the Tour de France. You may hear one or both of us during the Tour de France because logistics are a little bit tricky uh, this year but you are going to Copenhagen Lizzie you, you're going to be there for the race I am I am going to Copenhagen this weekend actually um, I'm going to be there for some events before the race and unfortunately I'm leaving a few hours before the race uh, which is very cycling isn't it um, but uh, I will be absorbing the atmosphere pre-race I will meet up with Lionel there um, do some things with Candale, and we'll be we'll be filming and, and shooting some very exciting secret tech for EF education typical SUV and EF easy post so um, make sure you look out for that on on the social medias and the internet I will and I'm, I'm interested actually I'm interested I mean I've never been to Copenhagen but I'd be interested to get your take on it because obviously as you know as a cycling city, it's supposed to be, you know, pretty much unrivaled, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I'm hugely looking forward to going. Everything I've heard about it is so positive. Um, I'm actually just starting to to ride again after um, pericarditis from COVID. Do you know, what? I was trying not to ask you about that, Lizzie, and you brought it up yourself. <laughs> How are you? Are you back? What's going um, on? Actually, it's, it's an interesting thing that I think is worth taking time to talk about because having spoken about it publicly I've had so many people get in contact with me that it's it's really it's something that has affected a huge number of people since Covid um, and so many people are struggling with and it's 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 really difficult thing to deal with so um, rest and take the medications and take your time and it does get better uh, unfortunately I mean I'm I've been off the bike now since the beginning of April so nearly three months um I'm just I mean yesterday I did my first 15 minute easy know what spin and it's very much a, a process kind of start at 15 15 minutes at 100 beats per minute you know stay at that heart rate for two weeks and if it's okay you can then then progress it upwards but it's uh yeah, it's been a, a very, very slow journey to get here, but I'm happy to just even be thinking about getting back on the bike now and to not have constant chest pain and burning in my chest. Um, but yeah, it's tricky. It's something we've seen we've seen in the Pro Peloton in the last couple of years, but um, people do get better. Sarah Gigante had pericarditis and uh, was back to her winning ways in just a couple of months ago in, in May. So um, I'm nearly there. And yeah, looking forward to going to Copenhagen and I'll be doing my kind of first few rides on the Copenhagen e-bikes that they've got all over the city um, nice. and, and exploring the city that way. I think it's a brilliant city to explore by bike. It's very small. It's very compact. But I'll um, I'll let you know more in, in August or maybe in the Tour de France femme coverage, which uh, will be later in uh, immediately after the, the men's Tour de France. I should have mentioned, actually, um, Charlotte Feel, who's in who's in the, the piece about Bianchi's um They've got they've got a, a book uh, coming out about Copenhagen and about the Copenhagenization, um, I believe. So keep your eye out for that one. Um, all right, Lizzie, I will. Um, I'll let you go. Um, make sure your husband drinks a lot of water. <laughs> <laughs> Nurse that hangover, um, and we'll see you. Well, I'll see you probably yeah, post contract. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks, all Tom. the best. I'll see you later. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Byrne.
With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.